Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm honored to be speaking to venture capitalist Rob Vickery. How are you doing, sir? Good morning. I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. I'm honored good. to be speaking to you today. I'm sure you're going to impart me with so much wisdom. Because you're uh, well, it's Saturday a- morning, so probably not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're a knowledgeable guy, but I'll, I'll start with the most obvious one because there'll be people listening or watching this that won't actually know what a venture capitalist is. So can you just give me a brief rundown of what, what is involved with that? Yeah. So look, we are, um, we are a form of finance. I think we kind of get put into different buckets, right? But most people think of us as being something around the world of private equity, which is not true. We are a, um, we invest into entrepreneurs who are building businesses at the very earliest of stages, right? So we're different from a loan. We don't charge interest rates per se. You know, we're not like, you know, um, we're going to give you you know, $100,000 and then in 10 months time, I want it back with 10% interest. We're investing in your company. We are typically owning a piece of your company, a little piece. So typically we own somewhere between 5 and 10% of your company max and we're giving you you know a healthy chunk of money and what comes with that money is um, access to our talent to our network to our ideas uh, to just be there on a saturday night when the chips are down you know we're um we're meant to be there for you as much as being an investor right so we we kind of walk alongside you along along every step of the way to you building a really successful business so um, typically we're investing in high growth um, frontier technology startups. So companies that are building really audacious products and businesses that are solving really big problems that matter. Um, so we're not investing in restaurants. We're not investing in the local chip shop or, you know, a new gym. You know, we're investing in um, fast growth, exciting businesses that have got plans to change something, disrupt something, or bring something entirely new to the world. Yeah, well, it seems that technology is really evolving rapidly. So that seems like the industry to be most involved in. So mm. obviously, you were based in Silicon Valley for a long time. Yeah. Would, you, would you approach people? Would people approach you? And I'd get a sense that you'd get a good bullshit meter, I suppose, as well, because people come to you with ideas. And yeah. then they might oversell themselves or they're unrealistic with expectations. So how would yeah. you see through that? Yeah. So look, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, yes, growing up in California, well, not growing up in California, growing up professionally in California, I grew up in England in, in the West country, or also we have a pretty strong bullshit meter as well. Um, but um, yeah, generally, yeah, you kind of just get used to it. Um, when you start off as a VC, you, you, you typically get to see the deals that everyone has passed on. Um, but as you start to develop your brand and your reputation and the investments you've done, you start to meet founders before they've even started to raise money. Um, so often the bullshit level is a bit lower then. Um, but no, it's just, you know, it's just, it's like a muscle memory. It's like playing piano or learning to ride a bike or something like that. It's something you just don't forget. Um, I mean, I've seen almost now, I was talking to one of my investors yesterday, I think I've now seen almost 8,000 pitches in my career. And I've only wow. invested in, you know, about 32 of those. So, yeah, I've got pretty, I'm pretty good at separating out the wheat from the chaff. Um, but, you know, generally, you know, if a founder or an entrepreneur is humble and pleasant to talk to with a really bright set of ideas, then, 
you know, I'm willing to talk to anyone um, for half an hour like that to learn a bit more about what you're working on and what your obsession is, right? Yeah. Often people, people who are bullshitting me don't have an obsession with the problem they're solving. They're doing it because they're trying to make money. And it sounds weird being a VC and investing in companies hoping that we're going to make lots of money um, is that quite bizarrely, we don't actually like people who are building businesses to exit, right, to sell. I like somebody who's building a business who is so maniacally obsessed with their problem that no matter what happens, they're still, this is all they do. This is all they're mm. focused on. And if you're building something and you want to sell it in five years, you've kind of got that mindset, right? So you're not really um, going, taking massive steps towards um, bringing about change or ultimately bringing about revenue, right? So, um, yeah. Mm. So what was your reason for coming to New Zealand? Because you, you obviously haven't been here that long, what, four months? Four months now? Five months? Uh, well, I've been coming back and forth for two years. Uh, so oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I finally moved the family four months ago. Um, reason for coming to New Zealand was, was, was really because I spent 10 years in, in California, learned my trade there. Um, and I've always planned to get back to the Commonwealth at some point. And um, about two years ago now, I, I started to explore what it would be like to either return home, um, to go to other markets like Canada or Australia or, and of course, New Zealand. Um, and I checked them all out. And um, some more in-depth than others. And New Zealand, to me, just shone out as being the biggest opportunity, the opportunity for me to make um, the biggest impact. Uh, I'm also maniacally obsessed with my job and my career, and this seemed like a great country that I could come to to, to, to make a difference. Um, you know, tech is important, second largest driver of GDP. Um, it's employing hundreds of thousands of people. You know, unfortunately, post-COVID now, with, with tourism in the decline, tech has now taken that place. So I was looking for a market where technology was important. Um, I was looking for a market where there are lots of really bright people coming out with... Um, uh, great ideas to solve big problems. And um, there's plenty of those in New Zealand. I think, you know, the number eight wire phenomena still exists and that's an infinitely investable uh, characteristic of somebody. Um, and then I was looking for a market that is going to grow relatively quickly. And I think prior to COVID, um, it was certainly going to grow, but my gosh, now it's growing. It's at a pace that, yeah. I can't keep up with. I've had to accelerate my hiring plans for people because I can't keep up with the number of deals that I'm seeing. Oh, and, really? And look, look, yeah. And look, lastly, it's a wonderful place to bring up my family. I have a young son. I have another son on the way. He's due in, in you know, in, in, in six weeks' time. You know, just wanted, um, I wanted all those things to come together and New Zealand was that for me. So did COVID fast track your move here, basically? No, no. I was originally planning on moving in October. Um, oh, right. okay. Fast track my, my move by a month. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm glad to be here. So what do you think is going to happen post COVID? Do you think we're going to get a huge influx of people moving here as a result? I mean, New Zealand's getting international attention just due to how it's handled it. But mm. do you see a lot of opportunities coming as a result of that? Like a lot of other entrepreneurs possibly moving here as a result? Maybe. I think that we've got a lot of talent here that we need to cultivate first mm. um, and realize the opportunities here. Um, I do think bringing in offshore talent um, 
is a great idea. And um, that's how the, the, the startup economy will grow. Um, and I have seen that. I've seen Kiwis who have been offshore for 10 years. I mean, I got pitched a company last week by a Kiwi entrepreneur who's been in Silicon Valley for a decade, moved back because of COVID and is now building his business here. You know, it's still early days, but it's a really good deal. You know, it's a really good company that I, I'm very interested in learning more about. Um, so yes, I'm seeing that there are, there is an influx of new people. Um, I think with those new people and the new businesses they're building, we will need to hire more offshore talent to support their businesses. So, you know, we need to hire data scientists, backend engineers, AI engineers, um, UX designers, all these different people. And whilst we've got some great ones here in New Zealand, we just don't have enough of them to support all of these new initiatives that are coming through the border at the moment. So I think at some point or other, we're going to have to open that up to let people like that in some really high value, hard to find talent. Um, but look, you know, longer term, New Zealand's got the eyes of the world on it right now. And it's now our, we've now got this decision about how do we handle that? Do we kind of still remain somewhat humble and, and, and in the background? Or do we come out and emerge and really try and define what is the New Zealand startup ecosystem and what is a New Zealand startup? Because we don't have to look like any other market in the world. We can look completely different if we want to. And that's, that's part of the reason why I'm here is I'm excited to work that out. Yeah. Have you managed to speak to any politicians? Because I feel the government should invest more into tech, I think, going forward. I have, yeah. Well, very good friends with Jamie Strange, um, MP in Hamilton. Um, oh, yeah. Spoken with some of the ministers as well. And I do a lot of work with NZTE and MB, um, a little bit with Callaghan and, you know, and, and yes, um, starting to try and talk to them. I think one of the things we need to... Remember is that venture capital and startups um, is a, it's, it's a tricky thing for somebody who's not ingrained in the business to work out. We're not SMEs, right? We're not small to medium sized businesses. We are by size, but by characteristics and how we perform as a business, we don't, we don't look like that. So, you know, for them to understand that, you know, we're not a business that requires 50 grand to get kicked off and then we start to become self-sufficient and we never need money again. We're, we're a business that needs either constant injection of capital or just lots and lots of customers who keep paying, you know, ever increasing prices for our products. Mm. So I think government needs to differentiate between the two and I think they're getting there. And um, I hope to do a lot more with the government to help them realize that. Yeah. Cause I know you're an avid gamer and I, I've always thought that uh, there should be more investment into say esports. I mean, New mm -hmm. Zealand has the best internet infrastructure in the Southern Hemisphere, and yep. that can be utilized, obviously, for esports, which is huge. It's obviously bigger than television and film combined. Um, but I gather that quite a few people within politics or even even uh, some older generation heads don't quite get it because, obviously, sometimes technology evolves so fast that it's very hard to keep up with it. Yeah, I mean, esports is a bit of an anomaly, and I think COVID has only made that anomaly even more mysterious in the sense that we've all been trapped in a house for the last 12 months, right? And we've all been beavering away at video games, me included. Hmm. Um, the Pre-COVID, I, I never actually funded anything in esports. Um, reason being is I still fundamentally, they were a lot of the startups were fundamentally pursuing a model that looks a lot like the previous world of sports, right? Selling tickets, 
to live events, selling merchandise, um, stuff like that. Esports isn't really, a, I don't think to me, it doesn't, from my experience as being an esports athlete, um, it doesn't feel like that. And it doesn't feel like that's the kind of area I want to invest in. So I think esports needs to define what it is and why it's unique and why it's not like going to pay, you know, a hundred bucks to go and watch the All Blacks at Eden Park, right? It's, it's something else. And it's a virtual environment. And I think we need to think more cleverly about how we monetize and build esports businesses. Because for me, I know about you, I don't really want to go to a giant stadium and watch eight guys around a bunch of laptops play a game on a giant screen. Oh, I'm very much the same. I'm very much the same. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be playing it because it's an interactive medium. Yeah. yeah, I like to be. I like to be a spectator in that virtual world, sat on the outside watching these guys running around, you know, capping each other's asses. Right. That's that's what I want to see. <laughs> but you know, I I don't want to sit there drinking a beer, eat, drinking a beer and eating chips in a stadium. So I think technology's got to catch up with um, the esports world. I think it's getting there. I think there's interesting like advertising and product placement things that can be, take place in esports worlds, but. Um, also, the publishers of these games build lots of walled gardens around their titles, right? And so we've got to kind of allow, encourage them to want to allow um, more ubiquitous technology to stretch across lots of different types of games as well as just one, right? It's not just Fortnite. Yeah, yeah. I fully agree. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So how, how, have, how has your experience been in terms of California in New Zealand in terms of the culture and the different work ethics and dealing with different entrepreneurs? Because I'd imagine the cultures are vastly different. Yeah, they are. Um, look, I come from Somerset um, in West Country of England. The, our cultures are not that dissimilar. And that's why I think I found it a little bit easier to settle into New Zealand. Um, humble, humble people, you know, tend not to tend not to rub too much funk onto stuff, right? We tend to just get on with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, California is the opposite. They rub a lot of funk onto everything and um, they're very good salespeople. They, you know, Californians are excellent at articulating their idea. Um, sometimes there's, you, there's not so much underneath the bonnet as there is in New Zealand. Um, so, you know, differentiating between that is important. The other thing to remember is that most Americans are taught public speaking from day one, from the minute they go to primary school, they're taught how to debate and how to talk amongst big groups of people. I know myself when I came to America first and coming here to New Zealand, I realized that that's not, doesn't come naturally to us. That's hard. Mm. So when American entrepreneurs come and pitch me, you know, when they used to pitch me in my old office, it was always entertaining. It was always like, they were very good at getting to the point and getting, getting out there and then asking for something. Um, I think culturally, the UK and New Zealanders, and particularly New Zealand, um, very few entrepreneurs, there's two things that Kiwi entrepreneurs don't do that I wish they did more of. One is um, ask for the money. So I've been in a room with you for an hour. You've told me all about your business, uh, but you haven't asked me for investment money. Now, you know, I'm here for that reason. You know, so just get into it. Ask me for it. Because if you can't ask me for money, then how do I know you can't ask a customer to um, increase the price for the product they've just bought from you? I don't think you can. So got to ask for the money. Um, secondly, is that all too often, 
the founders here tend to just jump into what they've achieved thus far, the advisors they have, the board of directors they've got, you know, but they don't tell me what the product is. And I think they assume that I'm not interested in what the product is or whether I don't get it because I'm just an investor or whatever, but I have to stop people sometimes. I'm pretty much, pretty much 50% of the time. I have to stop and say, Hey, um, just tell me what this thing is. Tell me how it works. What happens? I'm this customer. I'd sign up to your product. What do I get? So I think sometimes we're just trying too far to get to the end where I think we probably need to, um, you know, there's a, there's a middle, there's a middle chapter to your story in a pitch. And I think a lot of Kiwi entrepreneurs just kind of like jump beyond that because they want to get to the end. Um, so that's some of the things I've seen differently. And, and look also, um, in California, in Los Angeles, there's hundreds of venture, venture capital funds, hundreds mm. here. There's like five. So, you know, you've got to here, you've got to really, spend some time on your pitch, right? And spend some time on your approach to investors because this isn't a game of numbers. For, for a start, there's only five to choose from, right? Um, but also when you, when you go into that meeting, you've got to remember this is a small market, but go in there and, and, and go in there prepared, you know, have researched what I've invested in before. Research what we've, what we've done recently in the last 12 months. Check out our Twitter feed, see what we've been talking about. It really make that meeting useful and insightful. And that makes everything a little bit smoother and more interesting. Um, and also I think increases your chance of having another meeting. So um, when, when, you're, when you do these meetings, are you doing them one after the other? Yeah, I do about four or five a day. Really? Mm. How do you yourself though, stay mentally in the zone? Because obviously as the day goes on, I mean, if you're having meeting after meeting after meeting, and especially if you're dealing with people that aren't really telling you what the, the product is and you're having mm -hmm. the same issue over and over again. Yeah. By the end of it, I'd imagine you'd lose patience or are you just so good at it because you've been doing it for so long. Um, no, I never lose patience. I, um, I love my job. There's, there's, it's an honor talking to entrepreneurs who've put everything on the line, family, mm. jobs, mortgages to build something. Um, so now I'll, it's my, it's my favorite part of the day is taking pictures. It's all the other shit that I don't want to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the administration and the, the compliance and oh, I mean, I have to do it. I'm a financial organization at the end of the day, but you know, yeah, the, the, the real joy of my job is meeting with, with bright young people or mm. bright just people. They don't have to be young. I've got entrepreneur, you know, I've invested in people, from age 60 all the way down to 19. So I don't have any bias over age. Um, but yeah, I mean, also it's just, you know, it, you have to, ha I think being a, there's very few VCs in the world. It's not really a, um, there's no degree in venture capital. There's no, mm, there's no, um, there's just not many of us. It's hard to do and to get kicked off in it. It's really hard to do as well. So we're generally quite unique, curious, individuals. I am that way. Um, like I said to you at the beginning, I'm obsessed with my business and with what I do. And, um, that makes every meeting I do a joy really. I think that's what all business people should be though. Realistically. Be, yeah. yeah. Because obviously you live and breathe it and that's how it becomes a success. 
And you have to remember, we're we're entrepreneurs as much as as much as the people we're funding. Yeah, I mean, there's there's very little difference. We're, we're in lockstep together. The only difference is is that our product is you. That's so valid. Yeah, that's true. Do you uh, speak to a lot of Maori and Pacifica entrepreneurs? Because something you don't really hear much in the media about that. No, we should. And that is a that is a strata of the entrepreneurial population of this country that has been underserved and overlooked. And I intend to turn that around. Mm. Um, so when I first started looking in New Zealand, I I, I was determined to uh, do a few things. One is to understand more about the treaty and more about uh, Maori and Pacifica um, culture and, and its values and its principles and to understand how that can fit within um, within my own business, but also to understand more about the types of businesses that they're building and where they're based and how they interact with investors. So I joined as a partner at, at, at Kokiri, which is the, um, which is the Maori accelerator at the, at the Wananga. And, um, it's a um, wonderful program. It's been going for three years. I think this is the next year coming now, uh, next pro, next cohort. Um, and it's all Maori um, entrepreneurs who have got ideas and they go through like a three-month boot camp. And I got involved in that. I became a partner of the program and, and then also became a mentor. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, working with, with, this, with this community. Uh, I then, I, fa- I funded, I mean, half of the companies I funded thus far in New Zealand are founded by Maori entrepreneurs. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, I'm, I'm really committed to spending more time in Northlands and in other markets where I think there's some really good innovation going on um, by entrepreneurs who don't look like me. And uh, I'm really down with that. And I uh, want to, want to, to do a lot more. Um, and look, I have a lot of, a lot of my friends are, are from, from that community and, and, we often kind of just shoot the shit and take the piss out of each other. And I just say, look, people from your walk of life, and I'm stereotyping here, are some of the best storytellers and salespeople I've ever met. I mean, just the way, the way that a conversation evolves, is some, it's just really fun and interesting and, and enthralling. And I think, that makes, I think that makes Maori entrepreneurs totally unique in this world. Um, and I think they can build fabulous businesses. And um, I really hope to be able to invest and be allowed to invest in some of those businesses. Um, so yeah, well, I, I think that would be great. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems is there's just not enough media attention or it's not given as much significance uh, no. in terms of New Zealand media and how they approach these people and give them that platform, which is frustrating yeah. for me that it grew, around, grew up around a lot of these, uh, these groups. So yeah. you've explored most of New Zealand, I would imagine. You've been all around the country, yeah? Because it changes quite dramatically from the north to the south. It does? Yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So is the, is the plan to stay in Auckland? Is that where you want to continue to... Um, well, our office, is opening up in Ham- well, our office is opening in Hamilton. Um, so we'll be, um, we'll be based professionally uh, in, in the Waikato. And okay. um, we're just sorting out the office now. Oh, well, not let sure me know. Let me know. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll buy your coffee. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure where it's going to be yet. We work very closely with uh, Tompkins Wake, who's our legal counsel and Company X. So, um, you know, I'm sure the three of us will find us a home. 
Um, so that's where we're going to be based. I live in Auckland. Uh, my family is here. And um, I don't know what our long-term plans are. I imagine we might um, maybe migrate a little bit towards that way or we might stay here. I don't know yet. Um, we've, you know, we're still trying to work that out. But um, yeah, I've been all over the island, been all over both islands and, and I intend to do more of that. I'm starting a road show um, starting on the 26th of January uh, and I'm going to be in Hawke's Bay meeting with um, the entrepreneurial community down there. So I'm going to try between now and the end of May, I'm going to try and get into every single major and minor entrepreneurial community in the country. So um, Wellington, you know, Marlborough, Christchurch, Dunedin, um, Queenstown, getting up to uh, Palmerston North, um, uh, Topo, uh, Hawke's Bay, obviously, Taronga, Hamilton, Whangarei, Auckland, the whole lot. Wow. Okay. And so with this roadshow, what's, what's the goal? Just yeah, speaking to people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, just meet people, you know, hear some stories, you know, and, and to also to open myself up as a, as a resource and as a, you know, uh, like an ask me anything session, right? Just come in and let's just talk about it. Let's, let's demystify venture capital and make it more fair for entrepreneurs. Mm. So what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make? Besides the obvious ones with pitching you ideas, but in terms of just overall that you've experienced um, just in your time doing yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a very famous VC in, in California um, called Mark Andreessen. And um, he uh, runs a firm called Andreessen Horowitz, uh, which is one of the biggest VC funds in the world. And he was asked the question, he said, like, so if you could, if you could rent for a month, the most expensive billboard in the world over the most busiest motorway, what, and you could only put two words on it, what would you put on it? And he said, raise prices. And I agree with that entirely because so many startup entrepreneurs underprice their products and then shoot themselves in the foot because of it. Cause it's much harder to raise prices than it is to lower them right after you've already got a client. So one of the mistakes I see is that the startups charge too cheaply for their products. And some of that is because there's a natural level of insecurity about, well, I'm this brand new startup. I've got three employees. Of course I should build this out at a third of the price to Disney because I'm, that's all I am. Well, in fact, I think if the products and the technology is really special, I actually think you can go out with a much higher price and really use that as a differentiator. So I think, you know, doing that, um, the second one then is about building too much product too early on. And I've seen far too many entrepreneurs come and, um, present to me a product before they raise money where they've already built 15 different features and plugins and options and all these other kind of stuff. And they haven't even got a customer yet. So I say to them, I'm like, well, what if your customers don't actually want any of that? What have you, what have you done for the last three years? You've wasted all that time and money. That to me is not good business sense. Um, so I see a lot of people who, you know, are often maniacally obsessed with their product, but they're too obsessed with the product and they're not obsessed with the customers that they're serving. And that's really important is that, you know, I like customer led businesses that build products based around what they think, what their customers currently need and what they think they need in the future. Um, so I see, see that. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, the biggest mistake I see is probably when founders give away too much equity to investors too early on. 
And equity, when I mean equity, that that's like, you know, the crown jewels of your business. That There's 100%, your business is worth 100%. Often too early, people give away 50% of that to a bunch of investors who've given them 50 grand and then, you know, and then they've kind of gone. And they're left with half of the business. They haven't even hired anybody yet, so they have to give away more of it to hire really good talent. And then they have to raise more money. And for me, I will never invest in a business that a founder has got less than 75% ownership of their company because this is a long-term investment for me. I'm going to be with you for 10 years. And over that time, you're going to have to raise it again and again and again. And that means you're going to get diluted again and again and again. So that 75% will probably end up at like 25% at the end of your company's life cycle, right? Hmm. If, you, if you'd given away 50%, your ownership will be pretty much nothing. So then I've given you millions of dollars of money and other people have done the same. And, and when you've only got 3% ownership of your company, it's worth a couple million bucks, let's say. Still pretty damn good. But let's say Google comes along and says, I love what you've been doing for the last 10 years. I'm going to pay you a salary of $1.5 million a year and I'm going to give you $7 million of stock options if you ditch that company and come and work for me. If, that, if I was that person and I, had a young, and I have a young family, I probably wouldn't do it actually, but um, the more sane individual would say, yes, I'll do that and say bugger off to everyone else who's funded you for the last 10 years. I don't take that risk. I will not take that risk. And that's why um, founder ownership is everything. And that's one of the things that New Zealand has struggled with in the past is that, you know, the, the investor community here is, is growing. It's still very early. Um, and often the way in which early investors think is they want to grab as much of the company as they can. But in fact, our job is to grab, is to ensure that the founders retain as much ownership as they can. Mm. Do you find that th there's quite a few individuals that might think local as opposed to global? Too yes, often? there are. Um, and right now, <clears throat> in, the, in the stage of the market and the size of the market, that, that won't work for me. Um, you know, the companies that I'm funding need to be able to become gigantic businesses. And that means opening up and selling offshore. Um, I think you can still look local in terms of headquartering your business in New Zealand. But, you know, if you've got aspirations of raising from Muppets like me, then you're going to have to have plans to want to expand into other markets. You know, opening up sales offices in America, you know, Japan, China, um, Southeast Asia, India, you know, England, all those types of markets are what you'll need to be in if you want to build a business that will give me the returns that I, I'm looking for. So yes, there is, a, there is that. But I wouldn't say it's a mistake because there's plenty of businesses that are just as good that sell for $20 million that you can build here in New Zealand. They're just not the right type of business for me. So um, I, wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't turn people away from it. My ultimate vision is that we can build a billion-dollar business here. That is my vision, and that's when I think I can retire and go and become a teacher um, is when <laughs> I've seen that done and I've done it through my portfolio and through the companies I've funded. That's yeah, because I feel that New Zealand is largely untapped, and I think sometimes what happens is they either move a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs or people, they move off, uh, overseas to Australia yeah. or they move to America and they don't really utilize what we have here. It's almost exactly. like they, they don't understand the worth of their own product here or what 
they're able to do here. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any I things, agree. were there things that you were surprised about? Cause obviously I, I, I imagine that before you move anywhere, you do a lot of research on the country. So you must've researched on New Zealand quite a bit before you came mm. here, but was there anything that caught you off guard that you weren't expecting when you first arrived? Like, ah, oh, I wasn't expecting this. The things that, that, that surprised me when I arrived here. Yes. I mean, some of the cost of fruit and veg was really high and, you know, some of the fruit that's imported was, was, exor- was just exorbitantly expensive. Um, I quickly realized um, how small the technology startup market is here and how everybody knows each other. Um, and I was surprised about how there are no secrets and no confidentiality in this market. It's just like, if you're going to say it, you got to be comfortable that it's going to be printed on the front of the New Zealand Herald. Mm. And um, so I learned that I come from a market which was, actually quite good at being clandestine and keeping confidentiality, but here it's too small a market for that. So um, I'm certainly unfortunately going to be uh, being very guarded about some of the things that I say. Um, but other than that, no, it's been pretty, pretty easy transition. I think the reason why I ask is because, I mean, you look overseas and obviously I'm on a lot of social media and the perception of New Zealand is that it's this utopian paradise obviously, and they think it's, you know, Garden of Eden type thing. And obviously it, it isn't. No. So I'm always curious as to what people's expectations are before they come here and whether that largely stays the same when they move here or things are like, oh, oh my gosh, wasn't expecting that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I certainly, I've certainly seen some of the levels of poverty in this country that is quite alarming. Yeah. Um, and um, not expected, and also things that you know I didn't get when I was driving around in the camper van for two weeks. Um, and I think that's got to be fixed, you know, bar none. Um, I think that you know, obviously, the housing crisis here is massive, and uh, the fact that a lot of entrepreneurs that I'd be funding would not be able to buy their own home for some time. It's really worrying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, cause I'm originally from Auckland and the only reason I left Auckland is because I couldn't afford to buy a house there. And that, that yeah. was partly, that was partly the reason why I moved. Um, yeah. But then I know a lot of individuals that they really live pay week to pay week. I'm sure there's a lot of entrepreneurs that would probably like to give more, but you know, they're so consumed with trying to ensure that they can pay their rent or, save to buy a house that that probably hinders them yeah it is and i think you know the other thing i'm learning i suppose there's two other things that i've kind of noticed as well it's like this the whole tall poppy thing here is oh i hate it it's a real problem and it's a real problem for our market and i wrote my remarks for the end of the year last year and and in it, I, I think it, i addressed it as being the greatest risk to the success of our startup economy over and above everything else. I mean, look, founders that have failed and have built businesses that have failed before are more investable than those who haven't. Yeah. The learning you have from failure are just infinitely more than from either not doing it before or succeeding at something else. You don't learn from that shit. Yeah. You learn from the moment when you lost that customer or when you didn't raise that money and to find that there's a culture that actively encourages the 
the putting down of people because of that infuriates me. It has to stop. And I've had people tell me, you can't change it. It's just a culture. And I say bollocks to that. It's not culture. You're not born assholes. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I hate it. I mean, Israel Adesanya's speech last, uh, last year at the Halberg Awards where he basically, you know, told people to stop doing that, I thought was great. I mean, I don't even know where it comes from, but I find it frustrating as a Kiwi because I see it all the time. I mean, I've even had it with like this podcast where people want it to fail. And every time I've made a mistake or done something wrong, obviously I always try to improve on it. That's, that's yeah. the way you learn. That's the way, I mean, you look at any successful person at some point in their life, they've failed because that's yeah. just part of the process of succeeding. I agree. I've had it as well. People desperately want, some people desperately want me to fail. Who's this, who's this guy coming in, you know, from overseas trying to make our market more equitable. I think cool. Awesome. Great. We need it. more people like that. I did a few things last year that tried to bring some balance to the market and to bring some different content and ideas. And yeah, I've had plenty of remarks to my face and behind my back about saying, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm acting above my station or I'm sharing secrets about the industry that I shouldn't be sharing. And again, I just say bullshit to that and just get on with it. I mean, in fact, the more people, the more people say it, the more I want to do more of it. Um, they don't realize that about me the, that yet, but um, I never take no for an answer. Uh, and I grew, up, I grew up in a low income house, right? So, you know, I, I, I know what hustle is. <clears throat> and also I know, I know what it's like to have to make do and, and to, to, to achieve things when you don't have much. And um, I won't let anybody put me down. That's good. And I, and I won't let anybody put my entrepreneurs down. If I hear of that with my portfolio, I will come down on them like a ton of bricks. Yeah. That's good. I was actually just talking to my partner about this last night about how Kiwis are kind of passive aggressive, but yes. then um, a lot of ethnic groups aren't like that. My partner's Indian and mm she has no problems telling me what's what. <laughs> no. You know, and you um, same for Americans, uh, even English, same, same as well. So like it's. I'll be, actually, I'll be honest, mate. I think Tall Poppy originated with me, with my, with my people. You reckon? I do. Well, mm. Because we, we do it as well. And I've been, like, again, you know, there's, there's that point in England where like, you're a cocky little bastard, right? If you try too hard especially if you come from a place like, from, like me, right? We've, we don't have any money. I didn't go to a posh university. I didn't go to a good school. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's this point where like you, you're going above your station. You know, you get, you're too big for your boots. I think it originated from, from my homeland and was brought here. And, um, and I think Australia and New Zealand has taken it to another level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the expectations to conform to the status quo. And it's yeah. actually quite prominent in Māori and Pacifica communities. Um, I found even more so um, yeah. in my experience, which, which is aggravating um, because mm. I, I grew up around them and I, I always like to see people succeed and be encouraged. So did you notice that when you first arrived? Were you aware of it before you came here? Or was it something that you were like, oh my God, this is far uh, worse than I thought it was? I heard about it uh, before I came, mm. um, but I largely dismissed it. I was like, oh, whatever. It's just a, you know, 
it's just a bit of bullying, right? Um, but no, it's more ingrained than I realize. Mm. So how do you how do you combat that as as an investor? Like, how do you try to break that cycle? I mean, because a lot of people have been institutionalized, I suppose, with this. It's kind yeah. of ingrained from them from childhood, right? Because a lot of what you grow up learning, particularly up until the age of seven, kind of forms a lot of that core identity yeah. in a way. So it's very hard to crack that. It is. And look, I'm not, I'm not going to, but I'm going to try my best to, to do the things that I think I, I would have liked when I was younger trying to build a business is I just want to open doors. I want no ivory towers. I'm going to let, if anyone wants to come and talk to me, you can, you know, and I want to hear it. It may not be for very long because I'm unfortunately I've only got so many hours in the day and, and I want to get home to my family at some point. Right. But going to try and always have an open door and, and, and talk to people even with the most bizarre ideas or even at the most early and try to not to come there with that mindset of like, Oh, that's just silly. Yeah. I want, I want to have an open mind. So there's that. Um, one is I want to um, help with um, some of the younger entrepreneurial communities. Like I'm becoming a, uh, a partner, a sponsor of the Girl Boss Awards here in in, in Auckland um, to help young women entrepreneurs come up with ideas. So I want to try and do things at the grassroots, uh, get back to the school system. In Los Angeles, I used to run two, I created and run two entrepreneurship academies at two of Los Angeles' worst performing schools. Um, one in Compton and the other one in, um, in another area in, in South Los Angeles. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I worked, I, I lectured, I taught at school. I brought my friends into guest present to kids and yeah. And I had a good response in the end. I mean, we had about, um, about 150 kids in the program and, and we saw an increase in their graduation rates by 23%. Uh, wow. so I want to do more of that, get back to the, back to the roots, um, work with young people, which is what my, a lot of my passion is. So I can try and do that. Um, and then just keep on just trying to be enthusiastic and not join that, that culture because it's actually quite easy to fall into it. Yeah, well, I mean, what's that saying? You, you, you are who you're surrounded by. I mean, obviously, yeah. if you're around, whoever you're hanging around with, you subconsciously pick up a lot of that. So you can end up doing stuff and not even be aware that you're doing it. You can. And yeah. it's look, sometimes when you're tired and you're pissed off or someone's just beating you to the punch on something, it's very easy to just to go back and say, oh, those guys are just rubbish. I would never do business with them again. Uh, you know, go down to the pub and talk to your mates and say, I oh, don't do any business with those guys. They're a right nightmare. Mm. But in fact, you know, you have to stop yourself sometimes and say, no, 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 this, this, it's all good. Everyone, everyone succeeds when, when everyone works hard and works together. So, I agree. COVID is living proof of it. When it people really are is, in, yep, that's this is the this is the this is the tall poppy killer. Yeah, yeah, that's why I, I, it's amazing to me. I mean, to see how divided some countries are on this particular issue, right? I mean, uh, COVID doesn't care what color you are or what um gender you are or what yeah. age you are or any any of that and yet it's it's become political and it's dividing nations and um 
it's yeah. it's sad for me because it's like well i mean if, if there's a worse pandemic that comes along with a higher mortality rate i'm like it's going to be far more deadly because people can't yeah. be united they're too divided over things and it's it's frustrating yeah. i mean as I mean, someone who lived in america and you know you understand the culture far better than i i mean you must look at it and and be like this is nuts yeah i'm disappointed hmm. just generally but, disappointed because americans can be great people and they're they they are an inspiration to the rest to the world right i mean their country itself is an experimentation in democracy yeah a wonderful experiment and yes there's been some massive problems that recurred around race and around equality and around you know all those things throughout the lot since its inception right but um the divide that has happened since i mean i moved there in 2010 and yeah you know, I'm, I'm a i suppose you call me a democratic person right you know i was stoked to be there under the tutorage of barack obama who done so many amazing things and then to see the growth of this kind of but i think i think people got lazy and i think they forgot that deep down there's still a lot of racism in that country there's a lot of racism everywhere to be fair yeah yeah i mean there's racism here oh, oh most definitely yeah. but but there's also a lot of hatred about and and i think you know we kind of just swept under the carpet and we're like we're enjoying this time of recovery from the gfc and you know and having a, a president that the world you know adored right and and i think jacinda has got a lot of that going right the world thinks she's amazing and i think she's pretty damn cool for what she's done as well mm. um but um, I think that, you know, Trump really brought out the, the, some of the darkest sides of people that people thought were buried and were hidden. And in fact, they were just lying just beneath the surface waiting to come out. Because there's someone who was there, you know, from Barack Obama, you know, up until Trump and then COVID hit. Like, what was the, the change in terms of the vibe you know, in LA, Silicon Valley, during that period, within you know, investors, entrepreneurs, has it largely been the same, or has that kind of been affected by all of this as well? Well, California is quite unique because California is a democratic state, like severely democratic state. Yeah, yeah. So we were, <clears throat> and the fifth largest economy in the world. We were, you know, most people in California were extremely disheartened when Trump was elected. I mean, I remember the day when he, when he was elected, two things happened to me. One, the entire city was crying. Everyone was just flabbergasted and people were just crying at the fact that this idiot, you know, has been elected to the highest station and the leader of the free world. So there was that moment of shock. And then I was raising a, another venture fund at the time. And I remember, I was just like, oh man, we might as well stop now. The markets are going to go to shit. You know, people are going to lose all their money. Who's going to, I mean, this guy's going to ruin the economy. He didn't. Arguably, and I don't believe this, but no, I do believe this even. Barack Obama set up the economy to where it, to, to where it started to benefit and pay dividends for Donald Trump. So, you know, I think we he's been able to capitalize upon at least for the first part of his presidency, 
you know, the benefits of the, and, and of the, the measures that, that the Obama administration put into place. So, you know, luckily the markets didn't tank, right? And they grew and grew and people got richer and richer. I paid less tax. I come from England. I'm used to paying a lot of tax. Hmm. And so I, I, I suddenly saw more money in my pay packet. Um, so there was this kind of weird kind of thing about the economy is doing really well. Yes, he's an asshole, but let's just put up with him. <clears throat> um, and then, and then things started to get dark, you know, and at what period, um, the things around the Ukraine issues around oh, right, the yeah. investigation around the Louisville protests and the, and the, and the, um, the protests are being run over by, you know, a member of the alt-right, you know, the growth of the acceptance of the Confederate flag and of neo-Nazism, right? It was this kind of thing that got real scary, man. It got it got intense, and 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 seeing um, and seeing how it became acceptable for people to, and he made that he activated that, right? Made it acceptable for people to say the things they said. Um, it was it was scary. California again didn't have so much of that. Um, but the rest of the country, it was, it was an intense place to go. Also, it was never okay to really talk about politics. You always kind of kept it quiet. But my goodness, you never spoke about it in the Trump era. Because you just didn't know. And the people were just so in this cult, right? His voters are in this cult that they just can't shift it. Um, where it got really intense was this year. And look, I'm not a Trump escapee, right? I've been planning on doing this forever. I, I'm, I'm, I was not even a, I was just a green card holder in America. I couldn't even vote anyway. So I didn't have any, any horse in the race on this thing. But last year, it was definitely the time to go. Um, not just because of COVID, but the one thing that made me, just blew my mind was when um, in the first lockdown, I was driving to the supermarket to get some, some bits and bobs and, uh, there's only one gun shop in, in West Los Angeles. Right. And the line was over. Oh, it felt like it was a mile long. Just people lining up to buy hand weapons because, you know, this fear of defense and losing what they've got or just, you know, the world's ending. And I don't know, I, I have a real problem with people owning arsenals of weapons. Um, so I just saw more of that during that time. And yeah. then, then I was also there for the riots and for the protests and for the George Floyd protest, which is desperately needed. I mean, there's obviously huge uh, institutional racism within the law enforcement um, um, sector within America, right? But, you know, I was there um, seeing that stuff unfold. Um, I was initially out on a little boat um, at the Santa Monica Bay on that day and I saw smoke arising from Santa Monica and about eight helicopters flying in and police cars. And, and we got home and turned on the TV and we just got just like shocked that you know, the, the protest that is so valid was marred by these criminals that were going out, you know, stripping st small businesses of their stock, setting the stores on fire. And uh, it was such a, it was such a shame that it, it the two happened together um, I felt like the America was at a tinderbox at that time anyway, and people were pissed off losing their jobs and being locked up that this happened and it just set the world, the mark, the country on fire. Um, I hope, you know, what happened 
the results of what will happen after you know when the George Floyd um, case is, is is properly resolved that things will change. Um, but I really hope that no more protests like that happen again um, because it was scary. We had text messages from the police telling us to stay indoors under the curfew and not to go outside, lock your door. And I've never been in a world like that. <clears throat> and that really scared me. I don't have any weapons. All I have is a <laughs> kitchen knife. I slept with it under the pillow. Yeah, I, I bet you did. I mean, that must take a, a major toll on your mental health. And as someone yeah, that's thought, yeah. uh, pissed to be out there and meeting people and you're trying to be positive and, and with investing and business when you have no idea what's going on. I mean, it, it seemed like day to day things could change dramatically. Yeah. So how, how, how did you approach that from an investment standpoint when you weren't even sure what the hell was going on or I mean, business it. confidence would have been down. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. My confidence was down. Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah. Do you just, do you just put on the, the, the poker face and just try to go on and pretend oh, it'll be all good? No, I tried to plan for the, to create a strategy for what might happen if things really went south. Right. Uh, I didn't have to put that into play. Um, I did experience some depression. You know, I, I had some during that time. Um, being locked up and with a young child and not wanting to go outside because we don't want to catch the virus, um, you know, placed a lot of pressure on, on, on me. Uh, and I, I did, yeah, I fell into a little bit of light depression, I suppose. Um, I didn't take any, uh, I, I fixed it by just getting outdoors and going to the beach and having a walk, right, you know, away from people. But um, I fixed it myself. Um, but no, I just kept, I, I believed in what I was doing and I wasn't going to let go of that dream. And I, I don't, like I said, I don't give up on anything. So I just kept going. Hmm. Fuck it. I, I, yeah. Well, I think it's important that a lot of people know this because I think in New Zealand, because we've largely been free from it, we're kind of in la-la land sometimes. We're kind of yeah. disconnected from what's actually going on in, in the world. Um, yeah. And in various other countries, particularly with COVID, I mean, obviously there were other problems in America as well. So like, I think mm. it's important that people realize that, hey, you know, we're pretty blessed here to just be able to do things, to be able to go to events or you just mm. go out and do what you want. Um, because obviously you went through that and there was a period where you couldn't do do anything really. I mean, I suppose you're working remotely a lot. Well, I was working remotely and then during the time of these riots, you know, there were a National Guard walking around with semi-automatic rifles and tanks, Humvees on the Santa Monica Pier. You know, there was things like that that made you think like, shit, the world's coming to an end. Mm. This is getting really bad. You know, and I started like, thinking like, well, what, what do we do? Where do we go? You know, my son was born, so we didn't have his visa ready for him to return to, to come to New Zealand. So I'd spend a lot of time sorting that out. I had to get his passport in the middle of a pandemic, which was nearly impossible because all the, pa the passport offices were closed, but I managed to find a way to get that done and, you know, and, and, and things like that. So yeah, it was, um, it was weird, but it's what made me a lot stronger. It made me a lot better person. Mm. Um, spent a lot more time with my family. And, um, I think like, you know, like the, the, the original conversation we had about tall poppy, you know, we learn more from the things that hurt us than from the things that, that don't, um, so I've become a much better person as a result. I'm, I'm more determined than ever. Um, also I'm very grateful too. 
very grateful to New Zealand for um, welcoming me to the country and, and to the culture. And, and um, yeah, I'll, never, I'll never forget that. Because how much, uh, how difficult was it for you to get into the country? I mean, obviously flights would have been restricted and I know that, that they shut off the borders. So, mm-hmm. I mean, was it hard to, I mean, because obviously you had to get a, a visa for your son, but like, was, was the process quite difficult to even get here? Yes. Yeah. Mm. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, because I was speaking to my partner last night. She's like, how did he even get in the country? I'm like, mm. Mm. yeah, yeah. So, I'm like, well, it wouldn't have been easy, you know. No, no. I mean, the visa I had at the time um, meant that I was locked out. I wasn't, I wasn't a resident. I am now, um, but I wasn't a resident back then. Um, so I had to get a border exemption um, to get back in. And I think I was... I'm part of a group called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, um, which is a... Oh, yes. Uh, yep. Yeah, so, I, I'm, so there was support channel from there, um, but really it was me and, and um, working with, with um, my friends and my, my colleagues in New Zealand to help me um, realise what, what value I, I, I can bring to the country quickly um, and how I can justify why I should be allowed in, right? So I spent weeks tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, building a, a case um, as to why, you know, what, what I can do. And the, the, the crux of it is that I, I can't do my job. I can't be a VC through Zoom. <clears throat> you can't do that. You have to meet people in person and feel that chemistry. And I couldn't do any more investing without being in the country. It was really hard also managing the investments I've already made and being a mentor at, at the at the um, you know one on now, I wanted to get into their class and I wanted to teach people, so I was just very frank and honest and just wrote it all down. I did. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't like, oh, don't let me in or I'm going to take all this away because I was never going to do that anyway. But it was like, look, this this is the difference, right? This is what you know. This is what venture capital is. This is what it means. You have to remember, eighty percent of our capital goes to making jobs. Mm. So you know, this is what I'll do. This is what I've already done. I'm not building a bunker. I'm building a business. And I'm helping other people build a business. And I, I worked with up and down government. NZTE were just incredible to me. MB were amazing. Um, um, my law firm, Tompkins Wake, were incredible. Jamie Strange from Hamilton, um, from, from Hamilton gave me some really good advice. Um, just, just, just everybody. I, I, I realized I've got some really good friends in New Zealand who really wanted me back here. And, and so we worked together on it. And I presented a case to Immigration New Zealand and um, we got given a border exemption. I think I was the first VC to be uh, let back into the country. I think so. I think there was a piece in the Herald or something about it. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, it did. Yeah. It, I, I, know, I know you got quite a bit of media attention. I did a bit. Yeah, I didn't want it, um, to be honest. I, I wanted just to get back here quietly, um, but I figured it was not going to go away. Um, but then I did an interview recently with North South magazine and um, uh, we really went into the, the emotions um, of being locked out. So I'm actually really quite up for talking about it more now, but I, uh, I wasn't before I was a little uh, nervous about it. Hmm. So have a lot of your colleagues back in America, are they asking you how to get here now? Every day. Really? <laughs> Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? And these are great people. Mm-hmm. 
I think I, I really want to emphasize what you said, which I think is, is really key where you said, I'm not building a bunker, I'm building a business, which I think is really, really important because I think there are some Kiwis that think that billionaire Americans come here and they just build bunkers in Queenstown and they just take refuge there because of, uh, you know yeah, which they I, should, they should just fuck off and go somewhere else. Yeah. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Oh, but, well, mate. They just, <clears throat> they had no value here. They just create bad media. I mean, I'm not, we all know who we're talking about here, right? Mm. You know, that did not help. That set our market back quite a bit. Mm. You know, it didn't help with the reputation of New Zealand Inc. or New Zealand Tech Inc. You know, with letting people in and buying their passports and then spending two days in the country and then vanishing again, right? It's not, that's not what helps. Those people, we don't need them right now. And I think that's why I admire what the Labour you know, government is doing around prioritizing people that come back in who can add value or, or fill up international student spaces or pick fruit or, you know, help with, with the, with the seasonal harvest, you know, I think that's the right way to do it. Yes. There is a lot of money offshore and I think we can make those people become really valuable here. Um, but I think we need to give them some guidelines and some recommendations on how they can be helpful here. So mm. come here, go through the investor migrant program, invest $10 million into this economy do it through the usual, the equities and the bonds, but also put 30% into startup businesses. Not just tech startups, but any, any business, you know, invest through funds like mine or the other ones in this country, you know, do it, do more than just come here, flash your cash, build a bunker, buy a boat, and then vanish from public view. Come out here, lecture at schools, you know, Go to the Northlands, you know, be a donor, be a, be a, um, create a scholarship. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not saying I'm hyper and high net worth individual, but you know, I have been fortunate in my life and, and I have, you know, when I came here, I, I I'm not saying again, I'm perfect, but I created a scholarship at the university of Auckland for low income students to go to school, to pay their fees. Cause I was in that camp too. So, I'm only 40, you know, I had to pay student fees in England. So when I started uni, so, so I wanted yeah, to so do stuff like that, but don't come here and just, just, you know, build these James Bond villain bunkers. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, one individual can make a whole lot of difference. I mean, even yourself, right? I mean, you're just one individual and, and look at the impact that you've made. So oh, I mean, it, yeah. It's nothing compared to other people. I mean, oh, I, of course, I know, I know, no, I know you're being humble about it. But all I'm saying is, like the the, the power of one individual. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm just one person. What can I do? But you can actually do a lot. Um, and in some cases, if you're building a bunker, you're one person and you're doing nothing when you probably could have done a lot more. So, I mean, these people have all amassed wealth, most of them, because they have done amazing things in their lives. Hmm. Like, how do we take all that muscle memory and knowledge and then turn it, you know, to the value of this country? I mean, I, I love the fact, like, like, Gabe Newell is here. Gabe Newell is the founder of Steam. Yeah, right. And he's um, obviously a billionaire. But, you know, he, he's been 
he's been he's been welcoming people onto his boat. I understand, giving him some mentoring. He's been he was offering to um, finance a music festival here. Um, I think he's going to get his permanent becoming a permanent resident here. He's doing it right. I mean, he's here, and, and yes, he's wealthy. We can't ignore that fact. But he's coming here and giving back. And same with like you know, even people like like, like with James Cameron, you know, polarizing guy in Hollywood, right? But I think the hardest working man in in, in the industry. And oh, yes, he's shooting movies here. He's creating hundreds of jobs. He's li- he's moved here. His family is here. He lives in in the Wairarapa. You know, there's like it's that kind of way is the right way to do it. But these people that just sneak in under the radar and then you know live on Waikiki Island. And, and vanish um just just don't really add any value no they don't they don't not at all that's a complete rent so i apologize for that and, <laughs> that's uh, all right that's all right but it's important and it's and it's valid valid criticism you know and as as someone who who is in that industry who understands it and 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 all of that you know i think it's i think it's important that people hear that and i've been around extreme wealth you know, for the last 10 years, I mean, people who have got more money than you could ever imagine. And they often become, or some become guarded about it. They become very distrusting of people because they think people are friends with them just for their money. Um, but then I've seen the goodness come from those people, people who then take that and do great things with it, you know, and, and um, yeah, they're just amazing individuals if they can do that. I mean, I look at Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett and you know, giving 95% of their net worth um, to nonprofits and, and, and to, to giving back to the, to, to the population, right? Those types of things are just what we need to see more of. There's only so much money you need. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Like, how much money do you actually need to kind of be happy? I mean, you know, they say money is the root of all evil. Um, yeah, but... I mean, yeah. obviously you need some bit of money to be happy, but it, I think it comes a point where it's it's not actually necessary anymore. And then people get no. caught up in buying materials or buying things to try and fill some void or try to recreate yeah. that happiness, which doesn't, which doesn't work. And they can't. They can't. I mean, I, I would say that probably more wealthy people I know are, are unhappy than they are happy. And that's, that's a shame. You know, and I... I think um, I think we just need to. Uh, I think New Zealand could be a really useful um, haven for these individuals if they want to come here and give back. Would it be great to get their ideas on how we can solve the housing crisis? Yeah, I mean it's very very complex, and I I have no idea how you solve it. Um, but <laughs> but I'm sure there's some smart individuals that could probably fix it. I'm sure, or would have exactly. ideas. Could probably yeah. pitch something to politicians. I don't know, but. Um, yeah. yeah, I think so. We'll go up to Northlands and let, let's let's put some let's put some funding into schools. Yeah, well, Northland is very very much underfunded. It definitely needs more investment there. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, let's 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 do this stuff. Let's make um let's make it happen. Give yeah. some money to startups. Give some money to Maori founders, to women founders, disabled founders. You know, LGBTQ. Let's like let's let's start investing in in people that are often overlooked. And that's what I tend to do. I mean, half of my investments today are in women founding companies. That's good. I, think I don't a... do it for any reason other than the fact that they're just every every person that I've met like that is just a remarkable founder, and I want to give them money. That's amazing. I think that's a that's a great place to wrap up because it ends ends on a very high note. Um, if anyone wants to follow you, 
in everything you're doing um, with Hill Ference and, and all that jazz. Uh, what's the, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, just um, so Twitter, I'm at Vickery Rob. Um, you can go to my website. It's all on there. So hillference.com. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to do that. If you've got New Zealand in your, in your location on LinkedIn, it's an instant acceptance. So just send me a, send me an invite. Um, come to some of these events that we're doing. Um, come and say hi, you know, and um, again, no, um, no, no ego here, ego free venture capital. So uh, just come and have a chat. Mm. And when's the first one? Uh, when's the first uh, roadshow? Uh, 26th of Jan in Hawke's Bay at Meadowwoods. Cool. Um, and then uh, the other dates I then got to confirm and, and all that. Then we have a big annual summit taking place in September as well called the Village Gathering. And there'll be more information about that soon. But, awesome. Yeah. Well, Rob, Thanks hey, this, this, has been, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I know you're a busy man. You're always on the go. So thanks for taking time out for <laughs> to doing this. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe and uh, stay safe. See ya.